Today on Legalese, we are going to be talking about the best and worst arguments for free speech and why the calls from the left and the corporate media for more corporate and state censorship will destroy the very thing they say we need censorship to preserve. Hey, greetings, and welcome back to Legalese. Uh, this is a podcast where we discuss current events in law, politics, and culture. Uh, now, you can find the show across a number of different platforms. We have the video version available on Rumble, YouTube, Odyssey, and Spotify. We have an audio-only version available over at Anchor, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, and a few others. Uh, if you'd like to join the new Legalese community I recently started over at Locals.com, you can do that as well. And you can do all of those super awesome, cool things and read a bevy of articles that I have written in the past, mostly on issues of constitutional law, by heading over to Substack. Uh, and all those links are down in the video description. So I think you could sum up today's show uh, thematically as Biden's legacy and the importance of free speech. Now, I would contend that Biden has already done more than enough to earn a place of pride as one of the three most anti-free speech presidents of all time, right up there with John Adams for his passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts, and of course the Espionage Acts and Sedition Acts passed by none other than this country's worst president of all time, Woodrow Wilson. Now, uh, before we move on, to learn more about the Alien and Sedition Acts or the Espionage Act and Sedition Acts, uh, you can check out a couple past episodes uh, including uh, Sedition and American Virtue, and Julian Assange and the Myth of Constitutional Rights. Uh, and I will put a link to these in a card in the top right-hand corner of the video on YouTube right about now, or if you're on any other platform, just check the video description for links to these videos. So to kind of get onto the topics for today, you might be saying to yourself, as far as it goes with uh, Joe Biden and his uh, disinformation governance board, uh, you may be saying, well, surely we can trust this government's plan to censor our information because we are being told that disinformation is a threat to our democracy. I mean, the people elected Joe Biden, after all, he was their democratic choice. It's not like he's, you know, some kind of Nazi or something. He got 85 million votes. So just for an interesting comparison, let's compare the proposal for Biden's disinformation governance board with the proposal used to justify the Nazis' Ministry of Enlightenment and propaganda. I would like to remind everyone that Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in 1933 by way of a democratic election. And the following is how the National Holocaust Museum explains the justification, implementation, and consequences of Joseph Goebbels' Ministry of Enlightenment and Propaganda. So, they say, the Nazis wanted Germans to support the Nazi dictatorship and believe in Nazi ideas. To accomplish this goal, they tried to control forms of communication through censorship and propaganda. This included control of newspapers, magazines, books, arts, theater, music, movies, and radio. And how did they use censorship? Well, when the Nazis came to power in 1933, the German constitution had guaranteed freedom of speech and freedom of the press. However, 
through a number of decrees and laws, the Nazis abolished these civil rights and destroyed German democracy. Starting in 1934, it became illegal to criticize the Nazi government, and even telling a joke about Hitler was considered treachery. People in Nazi Germany could not say or write whatever they wanted. They go on to say that examples of censorship under the Nazis included closing down or taking over anti-Nazi newspapers, controlling what news appeared in newspapers, on radios, and in newsreels, banning and burning books that the Nazis categorized as un-German, and controlling what soldiers wrote home during World War II. And the Nazis used propaganda to promote their ideas and beliefs. Beginning in March 1933, the regime tried to centralize its propaganda efforts in a new ministry led by Josef Goebbels. This ministry was called the Reich Ministry of Enlightenment and Propaganda. Now, with the sole exceptions that I haven't seen any evidence that the Biden administration has called for book burnings, nor have they uh, been censoring soldiers' letters uh, home from war zone, everything else I just read there could very easily and accurately be said about the current administration's proposed disinformation governance board. Now, I want to be very clear about something here. I do not think Joe Biden is a Nazi. And I do not think Nia Jankowicz is some kind of Lady Joseph Goebbels. But what I do think is the blueprint being used by them today sure seems to bear a striking similarity to what was implemented in Germany in the 1930s. And it seems beyond foolish to believe that you are going to save democracy by following the very same blueprint the Nazi party used to exterminate democracy. Just because you may happen to support the particular technocrats making our proposal at this time. After all, the majority of Germans trusted Adolf Hitler enough to democratically elect him, and that translated into having faith in Hitler's choice of the Minister of Propaganda right up until the point where they proved that that trust had been misplaced. And by that point, democracy was already gone, and the fact is it has never truly returned to Germany. Here we are nearly a hundred years later and the German people still have yet to regain those civil liberties that they lost after carelessly surrendering them almost a century ago. And this seems to be very much the literal embodiment of a quote that I often use on the show from the Baron de Montesquieu when he said, A nation may lose their liberties in a day and not miss them in a century. So what I'm saying is, Take it from the people who have given up the very thing that so many of you seem ready to sacrifice on the altar of safety over liberty. Despite their constitution guaranteed to free speech and free press, these laws and decrees that abolish these civil rights, as the article stated, were the very thing that destroyed German democracy. So I would implore you to just take some time and really contemplate the lesson that is before you from those who know firsthand what it means to have a liberal democracy and lose it. There are many people who are still alive today 
that will tell you that they remember losing this thing that the left say they value above all else, being liberal democracy. And in no uncertain terms, these people are saying that they lost it as a direct consequence of the loss of the very civil liberties that so many on the left are virtually begging the government to take from them. Now, as another historical counterpoint, I want to share one of my favorite anecdotes about how a president who was elected into office by an entire generation who truly knew what it meant to fight for democracy uh, and in many cases gave their lives for nothing more than the promise of democracy. And actually, I want to pause real quick right here to reiterate a point that I made in my last video. Uh, I, look, I realize democracy is an inaccurate term to be applied, at least to the United States specifically. The reason I'm using this term is because the people that I'm mainly trying to address in this video tend to use that term. And it just, it whether I distinguish between a liberal democracy as opposed to a federal republic is simply not germane to the argument I am making here today. So anyways, what I was getting at was the American Revolution was a war that was fought to secure a new nation founded on something very much like liberal democratic values. A society who was fortunate enough to understand the lesson the German people had to learn the hard way, that the survival of democratic government was reliant on the survival of free expression. So this story begins in 1804. When the celebrated traveler Baron Humboldt called on President Thomas Jefferson one day, he was received into his office, and on taking up one of the public journals which lay upon the table, he was shocked to find the columns were teeming with the most wanton abuse and licentious calumnies of, of the president. The Baron threw it down with indignation and exclaimed, why do you not have these fellows hung who dare write these abominable lies? With this, the president smiled at the baron and replied, What? Hang the guardians of the public morals? No, sir. Rather would I protect the spirit of freedom which dictates even that degree of abuse. Put that paper in your pocket, my good friend. Carry it with you to Europe, and when you hear anyone doubt the reality of American freedom... Show them that paper and tell them where you found it. Sir, when the country where public men are amenable to public opinion, where not only their official measures, but their private morals are open to the scrutiny and animate aversion of every citizen, it is more secure from despotism and corruption than could be rendered by the wisest code of laws or best formed constitution. He went on to say, Party spirit may sometimes blacken, and its erroneous opinions may sometimes injure, but, in general, it will prove the best guardian of a pure and wise administration. It will detect and expose vice and corruption. Check the encroachments of power and resist oppression, sir. It is an abler protector of the people's rights than arms or laws. Now the Baron replied, but is it not shocking that virtuous characters should be defamed? Jefferson's reply was, let their actions refute such libels. 
Believe me, virtue is not long darkened by the clouds of calumny, and the temporary pain which it causes is infinitely outweighed by the safety it ensures against degeneracy in the principle and conduct of public functionaries. When a man assumes a public trust, he should consider himself as public property and justly liable to the inspection and vigilance of public opinion. And the more sensibly he is made to feel his dependence, the less danger will there be of his abuse of power, which is that rock on which good governments and the people's rights have been so often wrecked. Now, unfortunately, the censorious left and the corporate media, uh, including the following uh, passage from a Medium.com article by Cleo Cruz called Punching Down, Free Speech, and the Policing of Minority Voices in Liberal Democracies, have the following to say. In the context of the United States, I will discuss the discontent among enclaves of white men. Freedom of speech is being used as a vehicle for inciting hatred which comes from a fear of their perceived diminishing long-held hegemonic power. Now, I'm sure it will surprise no one to contemplate the fact that there is a vast crossover between the people who push that kind of anti-free speech view and uh, that the free speech movement is essentially just white men hiding behind the Constitution to oppress and victimize minorities because these are evil, bad, white racists who are not just evil and bad, but white and racist. And the type of people who will completely dismiss any argument that relies on someone like Thomas Jefferson because, after all, though he may have been instrumental in creating the, the democracy that these people say they value, he, too, would be an evil, bad, white racist because he owns slaves and therefore nothing he has to say has should be given any consideration no matter what it is. And in fact, they may even very well go so far as to say, and I've heard them say before, things such as invoking Thomas Jefferson in a defense of the importance of free speech just proves that this fight is now and always has been one of white oppressors trying to keep minorities down. So, it is for this reason that I want to spend some time making it clear just how narrow-minded and disingenuous this argument is by talking about another hero of the free speech absolutist movement. Now, in my recent video on speech and Twitter, I mentioned that every great leap forward in liberty and equality in this country, from the American Revolution to the abolition of slavery, to the incredible gains of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and the 1960s were gains that would not have been made if the country were more like the one we have today, where it seems like the majority of people see free speech as a mechanism of oppression rather than a necessary prerequisite for individual liberty. The fact is that the right to free speech is the dread of all tyrants. And those words come directly from the man I want to talk about at this point, another free speech absolutist who is every bit a hero in this cause as much as Thomas Jefferson was, and that is Frederick Douglass. Now, Douglass believed that freedom of speech was essential 
to abolitionism. Douglas himself believed that his own path to freedom had begun with his own literacy. He was convinced that the spread of literacy and the exercise of freedom of speech and assembly were essential to the success of abolitionism. Douglas believed that the right to liberty was a natural right, which had been clearly articulated in the Dec Declaration of Independence. Uh, he, of course, ended up disagreeing passionately with his mentor, uh, William Lloyd Garrison. Uh, Douglas further believed that those who wrote the U.S. Constitution had intended to put slavery on a course of ultimate extinction. Now, on December 10th of 1860, just months before the beginning of the Civil War, Douglas gave a speech in Boston where he observed that in the week before, a mob had disrupted a speech entitled, How Shall Slavery Be Abolished? Douglas further observed that it was gentlemen who had taken part in the riot, and that the mayor had ignored requests to intervene on behalf of protecting the speaker who was thus unable to express his views. Douglas lamented that instead of protecting the speaker, the authorities had chosen to cast aspersions on the nature of his speech, thus partying with an earlier statesman from Massachusetts. Now, Douglas said, No right was deemed by the fathers of the government more sacred than the right of speech. It was in their eyes, as in the eyes of all thoughtful men, the great moral renovator of society and government. Daniel Webster called it a homebred right and a fireside privilege. Liberty is meaningless where the right to utter one's thoughts and opinions have ceased to exist. That of all rights is the dread of tyrants. It is the right which they first of all strike down. He goes on to say, They know its power. Thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, founded in injustice and wrong, are sure to tremble. If men are allowed to reason of righteousness, temperance, and of a judgment to come in their presence. He says, Slavery cannot tolerate free speech. Five years of its exercise would banish the auction block and break every chain in the South. They will have none of it there, for they have the power. But shall it be so here? Now, Douglas went on to describe what he meant when he talked about people casting aspersions on the speech and the nature of the speech. He said that we were told the meeting was ill-timed, that his parties were unwise. He said, are we at such a time when a great principle has been struck down to quench the moral indignation which the deed excites by casting reflections upon those whose persons the outrage has been committed? After all, the arguments for liberty to which Boston had listened for more than a quarter of a century, has she yet to learn that the time to assert a right is the time when the right itself is called into question, and that the men of all others to assert it are the men to whom the right has been denied.
Douglas proceeded to say, There can be no right of speech where any man, however lifted up or however humble, however young or however old, is overawed by force and compelled to suppress his honest sentiments. Now, Douglas would say that the right to speak is accompanied by the right to hear. Now, this is a point that may be applied to present-day controversies where crowds try to drown out speakers with whom they disagree. Douglas pointed out that the right to speak was accompanied by a right to hear. He would elaborate that, to suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the right of the hearer as well as that of the speaker. It is just as criminal to rob a man of his right to speak and hear as it would be to rob him of his money. He observed that when a man is allowed to speak because he is rich and powerful, it aggravates the crime of denying the right to the poor and humble. Douglas further explained that a man's right to speak does not depend on where he was born or upon his color. The simple quality of manhood is the solid basis of the right, and there let it rest forever. Douglas went on to say that the right of free speech is especially important to the oppressed. Now, in 1854, Douglas had gone to Chicago to give a speech on the Kansas-Nebraska bill. This bill was introduced by Illinois Democrat Stephen A. Douglas and would permit the voting members of each territory, uh, even those above the line originally designated as free by the Missouri Compromise of 1820, to decide for themselves whether they would allow slavery. In that speech in which he played on the similarity of his last name to Senator uh, to the senators, Frederick Douglass had said that the right of speech is very precious one, especially to the oppressed. He noted that Senator Douglas considered himself to have been abused when he had been shouted down as he attempted to give a speech, after specifically stating that he did not approve of such a mob veto, Douglas observed that I am for free speech as well as for free men and free soil. But how ineffably insignificant is this wrong done in a single instance and to a single individual compared with the stupendous iniquity perpetrated by more than three million of the American people who are struck dumb by the very men who cause Mr. Senator Douglas was there to plead. Douglas went on to observe that a free press and a free gospel are as hostile as fire and gunpowder. Separation of explosion are the only alternatives. Now, Douglas pointed out that the advocates of slavery had sought to suppress anti-slavery sentiments throughout the South. He may also have been thinking of the gag orders that Congress had approved and which John Quincy Adams had fought so hard to repeal to prevent consideration of slave petitions. In the end, Douglas argued that truth is eternal, and such a truth 
is a man's right to freedom. Now, once again, history is showing us that there is no need to speculate on the consequences that free speech protections will have on minorities. Douglas has learned the hard lesson for us. That censorship is a necessary condition of slavery and oppression, and free speech is indispensable to a free people. And that it is most indispensable to the most oppressed and vulnerable communities in their struggle to reach parity among all men in claiming and asserting their civil rights. So I want to end this episode with something of a twist. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the true value of free speech. Now this video and uh, my previous episode have largely been aimed at what I feel are some of the best arguments in favor of free speech absolutism. However, I distinguish myself from fellow free speech absolutists in one very important regard, perhaps the most important. And this is a frequent cliche that you hear that sunlight is the best disinfectant. The idea is that as long as we are able to fully and freely discuss any idea and all ideas, we will always expose the bad ideas for what they are, everyone will turn away from them, and the best argument will always win out. And the marketplace of ideas is another cliche, essentially describing the exact same thing. That like any free market of goods and services, a marketplace of ideas will cause people to flock to the best ideas. The bad ideas will go sit on the shelves collecting dust until one day, into the trash bin of history, the bad ideas go. But I gotta say, as a free speech absolutist, these ideas to me appear obviously untrue. Now, conversely, we hear another argument from free speech absolutists that I don't think holds up. This is the idea that censorship doesn't work. A fairly generic formulation of their argument may go as follows. When you censor people, they take their speech elsewhere. So if you ban everyone, say, from social media who is a genuine racist, and they all go be racist together somewhere else. They go and they become an echo chamber where they all agree. And here, there is no one to counter their arguments. Then, once they are gone, you begin banning the people with milder, unpleasant views. And when they don't have anywhere to go, they just end up going where the racists went. And that over time, many of them will become racist too. And in that way, racism and other bad ideas grow and fester and reemerge stronger than it was before. And that when they reemerge, they begin to grab hold of the mainstream who are not inoculated against racist arguments by the disinfectant of sunlight. It's as though we need to keep our racists where we can see them so we can keep an eye on them. Now, as I've made perfectly clear, I consider myself a free speech absolutist, and as such, 
I gotta say, these arguments made in furtherance of free speech absolutism are at best terribly lacking. Now, I don't know that this necessarily matters so much, but my own definition of free speech is simply the right to speak free from violence or coercion. That, to me, doesn't apply to social media, and as such, though I do favor arguing for a cultural free speech that is respected on social media sites, I don't think you have a right to it. These are private companies, and to demand access to someone else's private property is itself an act of coercion. But whether you see censorship as something only government does or something that extends to corporations as well, including social media, that actually really makes no difference to my particular argument here. Now, there is a misconception that uh, the basic idea that in so-called liberal democracies, we rely on persuasion uh, is because it is the most effective of all options. The the fact is that that is not true. It's alternates like force, violence, coercion, blackmail, or bribery are uh, generally offensive to most decent people's sense of morality. It's not that these things don't exist. They obviously do, but common morality would dictate that they should be marginalized and prevented. As such, persuasion is the best option purely because it is the only one that is not morally repugnant. And that's why we should value it. But we shouldn't romanticize it. And that's what I think too many free speech activists do. They are deluded into a belief that when we choose persuasion, we choose it because it works best of all methods. But if that were true, there would be no temptation to censor or coerce or bribe or so on. So something we need to be honest about is that every time speech increases, be it through government liberalization or technological progress, we do see a proliferation of bad ideas, and these bad ideas have a bad habit of sticking around. Now, the invention of the printing press in the 15th century by Johannes Gutenberg was undeniably responsible for the proliferation of new books, new knowledge, and a widespread rise in the numbers of literacy. This is a great leap forward by any metric. But much of what came off the printing presses in those early days was undoubtedly destructive. This would include stuff like the Malleus Maleficarum, which is uh, Latin for the Hammer of the Witches. It's the best-known treatise on witchcraft, and this book essentially legitimized the persecution of so-called witches across Europe. It created a sort of collective mania that took hold and led to the deaths of anywhere between 12,000 to 45,000 people. These are people who were persecuted, tried, and executed for a crime they couldn't possibly be guilty of. On the other hand, censorship does seem to be very effective. Look at what happened to Donald Trump when he got excommunicated from all social media on January 8, 2021. He promised to start his own social media page. This ended up being a blog page on his personal website. 
And uh, there was an analysis of his blog page that showed a total of around 212,000 total interactions on all combined posts. Now, keep in mind, back when Trump was on social media, every single tweet he would send would get hundreds of thousands of interactions per tweet. The blog, the blog page was weak, and it was ineffective, and after a few months, he just took it down. Now, we've seen the very same thing happen uh, with other people who have gotten the same treatment and been essentially unpersoned from the internet, uh, Alex Jones, Stephen Molyneux, Owen Benjamin, and Miley Yiannopoulos are just a few uh, examples of people who had a massive cultural influence until they got the same internet excommunication. And these are people whose relevance in the mainstream has virtually disappeared since then. So the fact is that I think the effectiveness of free speech is really at best a mixed bag and cannot always be relied upon to work out for the better. And on the other hand, censorship does work and people who people who are against censorship because they claim it is ineffective, I believe are doing themselves a great disservice. Now, with all this in mind, I think there is still a very good reason to favor free speech. It, really, who can you trust to act as a ministry of truth? Personally, I can't think of anyone. Now, let's say you actually do think uh, like Joe Biden and Nina Yankinges are trustworthy people who will use this power in an objective way. Uh, of course, despite the fact that they have already clearly demonstrated that they see this ministry of truth as a way to oppress conservatives, libertarians, moderate liberals, and anyone else who dares to honest and utter opinion out loud, write it down for public consumption, or to assemble for a cause the current administration doesn't deem to be worthy, or those people who have the audacity to believe that we should have some kind of right to petition our government for a redress of grievance. But you need to keep in mind, Joe Biden won't always be president. What if Donald Trump wins back the presidency in 2024? It may seem unlikely, but the way things are going, it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility. Are you willing to put this same power in the hands of a Donald Trump or someone like him? I personally think it's clear that the people who are calling for censorship to save liberal democracy are going to be the very death of this thing that they value should their cause succeed. Now, as I believe my videos have uh, demonstrated, liberal democracies require a right to freedom of speech and freedom of expression. We have heard that exact, uh, that exact idea from those who established liberal democracies where they didn't before exist, like the men who founded our nation. We have heard that same sentiment from marginalized communities within liberal democracies, such as the plight of the slave in the antebellum self, and it was made clear by people like Frederick Douglass that censorship was essential to maintaining slavery and free speech is essential for free people. And 
we have heard from those who lived in liberal democracies and lost that form of government to dictatorships and totalitarianism, such as the good people of Germany in the 1930s, who, as you just saw a little bit ago, equated the loss of freedom of speech and the loss of their liberal democracy as being essentially one and the same thing. So where I'm going with all this is that every indicator points to the need for a right to freedom of speech to maintain a free society. And when you believe something is a right, that means you believe it is something everyone has an equal and absolute right to, regardless of outcomes and results. Well, that is going to do it for me here today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, make sure to leave me a comment down below. Let me know what you thought of the episode. Uh, just, if you want to share your thoughts on this topic or any related topic, please feel free to. I do always love uh, getting to uh, hear, or I guess, see, to see and to interact with you guys in the comment section. So uh, please feel free to do that. Now, if you like the video, go ahead and hit that little thumbs uppy button there. Uh, if you dislike the video, you can go ahead and hit the thumbs downy button, I suppose. Uh, make sure to subscribe to the channel so you always know when my newest videos come out. And I would ask if you are able to consider uh, heading over to Locals.com and becoming a supporting member of the show for as little as 2 bucks a month. I will also take one-time tips through PayPal, Venmo, uh, Anchor, and a couple other services. Uh, but if you're not in a position to support this show financially right now, that's all right. I understand. Uh, I want you to know I still do appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time here with me today all the same. And that goes for whether you are a first-time viewer or a long-time subscriber. And one thing you can do to support the show for absolutely free is to uh, plaster this episode to all of your favorite social media sites. And if you would, real quick for me, just think of one person you know who you think may enjoy uh, this content and get some value out of it. And before you close the window or close the tab on your browser uh, and get on with your day, uh, if you would just take a moment and send this a link to this episode to that friend uh, and to recommend the show to them, I would be very, very grateful. So uh, until next time, this has been Bob for Legalese, talking about free speech, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est.